Welcome back to Hashtag Sisters in Law with Kimberly Atkins Store, Jill Winebanks, and me, Barb McQuaid. Joyce Vance is away this week, but we look forward to her return next week. In exciting news from the merch front, we have a new for spring pale blue women's t-shirt in the Hashtag Sisters in Law merch store. You can go to politicon.com slash merch to get yours now. I have one and a friend told me that she bought one yesterday. I'm told they're going fast. Well, let's turn to today's show when we'll be discussing the Jared Kushner business deals in Saudi Arabia, Elon Musk's bid to take over Twitter, and the police shooting in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And as always, we look forward to answering your questions at the end of the show. We have some pretty heavy topics today. So before we turn to those, I want to discuss something lighter with my sisters. Uh, I love words and I love combinations of words. And you are all wordsmiths. Um, There are some words I I love just for the sound of the word itself. So I want to ask you, each of you, what are some of your favorite words? Kim, you're the journalist and you're in the business of words. (laughs) What what are some of your favorite words? I'm also a a grammar and vocabulary nerd. Mm. So this is, um, this, this word actually stems back to when I first learned it when I was um, in elementary school. And it's not only is it a great word in itself, but what it represents are other great words. And that word is onomatopoeia. So first of all, any word that has four vowels in a row is just gold. Yeah, that's man. Cool. That is fantastic stuff. But the fact that, uh, for those who, who don't know, an onomatopoeia is a word that sounds like the thing it's describing, right? So like squish, you know, or, or, or splat or something like that. So not only boom. is onomatopoeia great to say, boom, exactly. <laughs> it's fun to say these words. You know, I, we, I talk, I've said before that my favorite legal word is quash. <laughs> and although that is not an onomatopoeia, it kind of is. Like yeah. I imagine that when, you know, a judge <laughs> strikes <laughs> yes. down a, strikes down a motion, that it, it makes a noise and it goes quash. But <laughs> I love those types of very satisfying words. What about you, Jill? Man, it's hard to beat that. That is so good. <laughs> but actually, my words sound mundane, which is also a good word in, mm. in comparison to yours. I like clear, concise words to communicate, particularly on television and radio. Um, but I also like words that make clear what you're saying. We won. It's done. Those are mm-hmm. you know really good ways of communicating. But and I learned that my first year in Jern school when I wrote the word conflagration. And I got it back with a red X out saying, if you meant fire, say fire. And so I've tried to use words that are communicating. That's really what I like. I asked my husband this morning what his favorite words were. And he came up with things that he liked the sound of posh mm. and scurvy. Mm. <laughs> I, I don't know what he was thinking. <laughs> He liked meditation and breath and iteration. And I thought those were pretty good words. And then I thought of words I, I, hate, I hated, which were gerrymander and Citizens United. But then mm. I came up with pop and picnic. Pop for the three of us who are Midwesterners and know that soda is actually pop. And picnic because it just is getting to be that time of year mm. and made mm. me feel happy to think about so I would say all of that, and on behalf of Joyce, I'm going to throw in Pesadiki. And for our listeners who don't know what that means, I had asked her when she was flying today whether she was going to carry food for a Seder in 
the place she was going to. And she said, yes, she was taking Pesadiki food. And Pesadiki is a Yiddish word for Passover or Pesach. And so happy Passover to all our listeners, as well as happy Ramadan, happy Easter. It's, it's a big trifecta of holidays. Well, that's, I felt shade on that pop thing, Jill. Don't, don't think I didn't, I didn't catch that. Or have you converted to soda, Kim? I, I had to. I went to the East Coast and I got hazed. What a sellout. Oh, um, Jill, I like it that I can tell uh, another reason you have such a happy marriage. I've been able to meet your husband and seen your beautiful marriage in action. It's uh, one of the, if, if he came up this morning with the word breath as a word that makes him happy, that is the secret to a happy marriage. So good for you. Um, well, I, I like scurvy, but just make sure he eats vegetables though. Like we don't, you know, he can just say it. He doesn't have to get it. Well, I like all those words, you know, in writing like you, Jill, I favor short punchy words and simple declarative sentences. I've always been about plain English mm-hmm. for lawyers and, you know, using words. I, I think I was always taught to write to be understood and not to use big fancy words. But I also really admire the lyrical sound of words. So I tend to go for the words that have a lot of different sounds within them, like diabolical. I think that's a great one. It's got, I don't know, was it five syllables yeah. and lots of different sounds going on. It's almost like music. Um, peripatetic. That's another one I like, you know, somebody who's sort of wandering. Um, I, I also like the word melody because it sounds so nice rolling off the tongue. So words are a wonderful thing. Combining words in interesting ways is what makes, you know, reading and writing so much fun. Melody could be an onomatopoeia. <laughs> if you think about it. I think so. I'll, make, I'll take that. So this week brought some really shocking news, maybe not so shocking, about Jarrett Kushner's investment firm securing a $2 billion, that is billion with a B, $2 billion fund run by the Saudi crown prince. Yes, the same crown prince who the CIA concluded ordered the assassination of Washington Post columnist Jamal Khashoggi. This is the latest in a series of ethically challenged yet incredibly lucrative moves by Kushner since he was given the role in the White House by his father-in-law. So, Jill, we're lawyers. We are not investors, although you might be. You've had a lot of jobs, so I I won't speak for you. But can you give us an idea uh, about what concerns were flagged about this deal in particular? Because it does bear on our legal analysis. Yes, I certainly can, but it has to be in the context of this isn't the first and only thing that looks suspicious in the Jared Kushner era. Um, So in terms of this particular one, first of all, he has no experience in doing this kind of investment handling. And when the prince's advisors reviewed it, They said, don't do it. This is nuts. It doesn't make any sense. He doesn't have the experience. And the crown prince said, I don't care. I'm doing it anyway. And we're not talking about even just $2 million. We're talking about $2 billion. And this is also in the context of the president for whom Jared Kushner worked and whose father-in-law is 
the same person, um, had told reporters that he, he, Trump, had protected the Saudis and in connection with the killing uh, and dismembering of Jamal. So I think that there are a lot of reasons to be really suspicious about why he got $2 billion. And it's raised the question of, you know, was this a payoff for some political acts he did while he was in office? Or was it because they thought he'd be back in office and have more power and it's sort of greasing the wheels for future favors from him? There are some specific things we could look at, like when um, the Saudis and UAE wanted to have um, a blockade of Qatar and got it. Was that a payback for the future help that they were going to give him? And mm. so there's some real political mm. issues of was our foreign policy endangered and influenced by Jared Kushner's and Donald Trump's financial interests? Because both of them, unlike any previous president, refused to give up all of their holdings and to make them into blind trusts. So there's some serious questions about that in particular. You're absolutely right. I mean, it raises a lot of questions. Barb, I, I see a lot of potential ethical and legal issues here. Everything from the emoluments clauses of the Constitution to maybe even potential pr uh, crimes like bribery. What do you see here? Yeah, I think whenever you see big payouts like this, uh, as a prosecutor, at least my mind goes immediately to some of the federal statutes. And one of them is the bribery statute. And the bribery statute, I think many of us understand if you receive money to um, engage in some official act in the future, you know, if I pay you $10,000, you'll vote in favor of my contract. Most of us think of it in that way, but it also has a reward provision. And so that is, if you do the thing and then you get paid for doing the thing, that is also a crime under the bribery statute. So if, um, as Jill was suggesting, the Trump administration or Jared Kushner in his capacity as senior advisor had taken any action that was favorable to the Saudi state, and now he's getting his reward, that could be potential bribery. You'd have to show, though, a quid pro quo, that there was a this for a that. And that can be very, very difficult. We have seen in recent years the Supreme Court uh, really erode some of the uh, bribery laws that are used, that it has to be a very strict quid pro quo. There's a case involving the, the governor of Virginia who uh, helped someone get his business launched by hosting events at the governor's mansion to promote this business. And he also happened to receive lots and lots of money for his daughter's wedding. But the court said that that was not an official act by ho just hosting and promoting a business. And so that didn't count. So the law is a little bit murky here and it keeps getting weaker, I think. Um, there's also the emoluments clauses, as you mentioned, Kim, to the constitution. One of them specifically prohibits um, people from accepting uh, uh, federal government officials from receiving gifts or benefits or other emoluments. It really just means anything of value. And the reason is it creates a conflict of interest to receive things from the government. Your loyalty is supposed to be uh, to the United States and not to some foreign government. And so uh, it's strictly prohibited. But now, of course, he's out of office. He's not in office anymore. The President Trump is out of office. Is this just a backdoor way of paying someone off? Um, but I, I think it's one of those things that is awful, but lawful. 
Yeah, you know, it's really interesting that the Emoluments Clause actually went back and looked at the Constitutional Convention and looked at some of the things that the framers were really concerned about as they were crafting um, the the text of the Constitution. And this was really high on that list, this idea that they really wanted to break away and, and ensure that there was no system where foreign governments can, you know, bestow riches on the leaders in a way that had been done with kings, that had been done with other um, other types of, of government. And they wanted to insulate the American government from that. So they put in the Constitution that you cannot accept those types of gifts to avoid this very thing. Well, the problem is they couldn't enforce it. They gave the power to enforce it to Congress and Congress hasn't. It really hasn't. There's no, while within the executive, um, there is an office of um, government ethics that has some rules. It really doesn't, and we saw this with the last administration, it really doesn't have enforcement teeth. So it will really take an act of Congress to say, no, if you are elected to office, you cannot accept any of these gifts. If you are uh, not just elected to office, but if you work in the White House, for example, if you are a senior advisor like Jared Kushner can, you cannot accept these gifts and give it a period of time after which they still cannot accept these gifts so that foreign governments can't just do an in run and say, OK, well, I won't give it to you now. I'll just wait as soon as you leave and give it to you then because that will just work around it. But um, I really don't see any appetite in Congress. There have been bills that have been filed, but none have been passed. And I, I want to get to this other issue that Jared Kushner is not only a former senior advisor to Donald Trump, he is his son-in-law. And that brings up another ethical issue, which is nepotism. What do you guys think the rules are or what rules should apply to public officials when their family members are doing are are doing these things and and not just the public officials themselves i'll start with you barb well there is a federal statute on this there's a statute that says that uh, it's generally prohibited for a federal official to appoint promote or recommend for appointment or promotion any relative uh, to an agency. Um, in fact, when I was serving as U.S. attorney, my husband was an AUSA within the office and he um, had to be detailed to a different U.S. attorney's office, the Northern District of Ohio. He worked in Toledo, Ohio for the eight years I was U.S. attorney. Um, wow. Yeah, I mean, what? A, what? A, how lucky am I to have a partner who'd be willing to do that? Yeah. But we both understood wow. that was the deal. And so he dutifully went, it, you know, it wasn't his choice to do that, but he understood that it was important to make sure that not only was there um, no nepotism, but there was no appearance of nepotism. He, you know, he had been there long before I started working there, but um, that, you know, to, to be very cognizant of those rules and the appearance of those rules. And then you have someone like Donald Trump who appoints his daughter and a son-in-law to be senior advisors. So um, when it comes to the president, those appointments uh, don't, uh, aren't governed by this federal statute, but I still think it creates these uh, impermissible appearances. And I think that that's when you start seeing things like this, even though there may not be a law that prohibits Jared Kushner from engaging in business deals with Saudi Arabia. It's still just a bad look. And I, I will also say, I think it's a really bad look for Hunter Biden to be involved in business deals with China. Um, I, I, I don't want to engage in whataboutism when we're talking about Jared Kushner, but 
Hunter Biden has also, I think, traded on his father's name. I don't know that he's done anything illegal, but to engage in, in and to profit from from that name. And I think it creates a bad appearance ethically that if you're going to be in the public arena, I know it doesn't mean that your family members uh, and, and spouse are forever barred from engaging in uh, financial activity or business deals. But I think you ought to at least think about it, about what does this do to the public confidence in your job, uh, you know, your work on the job. And I think, I'm glad you said that because I think both things can be true. We can say Mm -hmm. that that is uh, at least an appearance of a conflict with Hunter Biden without equating Mm -hmm. the two uh, and without uh, saying what about ism. In fact, I believe that it is true that the nepotism statute that you cited was passed in response to JFK appointing Bobby Kennedy as attorney general. And so this is not, no one party has a monopoly on things that, uh, can demonstrate why these uh, nepotism prohibitions are important. Joe, what do you think? Well, let me start with the JFK because that was during my active lifetime. Um, and I remember JFK saying, you know, look, I'm entitled to have someone I totally trust in that position. And as we all know, Bobby Kennedy did a fabulous job as attorney general. He really did. Um, So I think there is a question of whether nepotism leads to bad appointments of people who aren't really qualified and are getting it just because they are. One of my best friends was, uh, it's been said about her that she gave nepotism a good name because she did such a good job in taking over the family company. But I, I think in general, obviously the law of nepotism should govern. I also want to point out that there seems to me to be a huge distinction between Jared Kushner, who served in the administration and traded on that and may have affected our foreign policy by what he did, and someone whose son is engaged in his own business activities but is benefiting because his name is the same, maybe. We don't know that, but it's possible. Um, But in any event, I would say that that's closer to the Ginny Thomas situation She's entitled to have her own career and her own life, but Mm -hmm. she's not entitled Mm -hmm. to trade on the fact that her husband is a justice of the U.S. Supreme Court. And that seems to be what's happening in her case. So I think anything that creates an appearance of unfairness, whatever it is, whether it's the nepotism or any of the other things like we've talked about in past episodes with Ginny Thomas, is something that should be barred. And you're right, Uh, Barb, when you talk about emoluments and then, Kim, what you talked about is we need a law that puts some teeth into that. It's a bad thing, but it isn't illegal. It's illegal under the Constitution, but there's no enforcement. So we need a law that says you cannot do what the Constitution says you can't do, and here's the penalty for it. And that should be passed pronto. Um, And and I know there's a Protect Democracy Act that um, I think Adam Schiff has been sponsoring that we should all look at because it's intended to fill gaps in existing laws like this, where things just aren't enforceable under the current set of affairs, state of affairs. Yeah. 
Yes, I think you're right. I think on the Senate side, it's sponsored by Richard Blumenthal, and there needs to be uh, teeth put into these laws. And yes, it, it, there are grades to, and degrees to anything. I think if there's ever been a situation that screams for this law, it's somebody who appears to have been given a very lucrative $2 billion fund to manage with all sorts of fees on top of that $2 billion after that person seems to have helped a foreign national dodge a murder rap in the United States. That's really um, appalling. And if that doesn't spur Congress into action, I don't know what can And the fees that you mentioned are way out of line with normal fees for a well-managed fund. So, Which is why the advisors were like, what are you doing? (laughs) Like, like, no, this is a terrible idea. Oh, well, well, we will see what happens there. Well, there's... A big week for First Amendment issues uh, this week, and two are particularly fascinating to me because of their unusual context. One raises questions about academic freedom and free speech and whether tenure is a total protection for a law professor's broad range of public racist comments over a prolonged period. The dean of the University of Pennsylvania Law School is seeking sanctions against Professor Amy Wax and condemned her comments as, quote, thoroughly anti-intellectual and racist. The other First Amendment issue arises in a corporate context that has raised uh, questions about required disclosures of stock purchases, the board's duty to maximize shareholder value, as well as who controls what is allowed on Twitter and potentially all social media platforms. And so I think these are really good First Amendment questions. And I want to start with you, Barb, talking about um, Professor Amy Wax, who's a University of um, Pennsylvania Law School professor. What did she say and what does tenure protect her from and what options does the University of Pennsylvania Law School have? I don't want to repeat the things she said because I find them so hateful, but I'll describe them. Um, Her most recent comments were about what she perceived to be a disproportionate number of Asian Americans in the sciences and in medicine and suggesting that that's a problem and that we should close our borders to uh, Asian immigrants to avoid what she considers a problem. And so this is a teacher at a university. Imagine being a student in her classes. And this person has expressed dismay that there are, in her view, too many Asians (laughs) in the sciences or that she thinks African-Americans are inferior. Uh, Imagine being a student of any ethnicity or race and being in that class. I think it it harms the university and those students. And so your question, Jill, is a good one, which is about as a tenured professor, what, if anything, can they do about it? Tenure is there to protect people for, for academic freedom, to allow people to push the edges, to think about not only what is, but how the world might be, which is sometimes controversial and sometimes might make 
people unhappy. And so they enjoy a, a wide uh, swath there, but it's, it's not unlimited. And I think when you start talking about things that are hateful to students and bigoted, there has to be a line drawn there and the university doesn't have to tolerate that. Um, they are currently go- going through a sanctions process with her uh, based on their university handbook. A tenured professor is not like most employees, which is an at-will employee who can be fired for any reason or no reason. They have due process rights. They can It's considered a property that cannot be taken from them without due process. So a hearing and good cause to show that she's... Um, unfit to serve in this proper role would be necessary. But it looks like the university is proceeding at least in baby steps with sanctions. I don't know that they're going to go so far as to dismiss her. But, um, you know, there's been some pushback. But um, I, I think it's, I, I think when you talk about academic freedom, there has to be some line. You, you can't bully students. You can't abuse students. You can't say things like this that are so hateful and bigoted and ignorant um, as to poison the entire university community. Absolutely. And I can only imagine that it will impact applications to the school. I would certainly hesitate to go to a school that allowed a professor to say the hateful things that she has said. Um, I don't know exactly what the sanctions are, but she has already been barred from teaching any first-year students. I guess they're considered more vulnerable to her hateful rhetoric. I don't know. I, I think any student would be vulnerable to that and that she should be barred from teaching. Uh, it's It seems completely wrong and creates a really bad impression of the school. But Kim, let's look at what some of the defenses are because the Academic Freedom Alliance, which is a nonprofit organization, defends the rights of faculty members at universities and colleges. And they released a letter supporting what they say is her right to free speech. So this relates back to our conversation you know, about some of the other free speech issues that we've had. What do you think? Are there no limits to hateful comments a professor can say? And can tenure ever, you know, allow her to yell fire in a crowded classroom, for example? Yeah, you you, you anticipate uh, my comments in that, yes, she has First Amendment protections like everyone else. But I think in this context, as in others, there is a misunderstanding about what First Amendment protections are. You know, can this person, can this professor go to a public square? Let's take the most basic, you know, theory of of First Amendment. Go to a public square and espouse all of these beliefs that she has as racist as they may be and be free from, you know, being arrested or for the state shutting her down or anything like that. Yes, she absolutely can do that. That is what the First Amendment protects. The First Amendment does not apply to any employment situation. So can the university sanction her for doing that if it violates their rules? Absolutely. They, they most certainly can. That's not a First Amendment violation. And I believe that this group, this nonprofit group, should be thinking that it's also the right of students to be in a place, to be in a university setting where they do not have to be uh, made to feel uh, as if they are being told by the very people who are teaching them that they are not good enough. Now, I want to 
put aside this. This is, I am not talking about an ideological difference that is being held by a faculty member. And I know there's a lot of talk about universities being too woke and you can't get to watch what you say and you need, you know, safe spaces and all this other stuff. And there's a lot of push. I'm not talking about that. I believe that it is best for universities to have a wide view, be open to a wide array, a wide array of ideological views, because that is what challenges students. That is what helps students believe, work out what their own beliefs are and challenge themselves and learn more about the world and learn more about other viewpoints. I believe there should be more of that. I believe if conservatives want to speak at a university, you know, let them. If, if, if liberals want to speak at a university, let them. That's not what we're talking about here. We are talking about racism. We are talking about the kind of thought that went behind um things like the the worst atrocities in the world that were carried out in the name that certain ethnic groups, certain racial groups were better or worse than. That's the stuff that she's trading on. If I spoke like that, I would lose my job. And the 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 dean of the school has said that he has received complaints about her since 2017. If I had been saying stuff like this since 2017, do you think I would still be working for the Boston Globe? I would not. So it is perfectly fine for her employer to punish her or to I'm not I'm not a professor. Maybe Barb can speak to this. I don't know exactly how if someone is tenured, uh, what the limits of disciplining them are. But I would suspect that there is at least something they could do. Yeah, with with a hearing, she just gets due process rights. She gets due process rights. She gets a hearing. Whatever the standards are in the university's employee handbook will be what she's guided by. And if she has failed to live up to those standards, as long as she gets the due process of a hearing, an opportunity to respond, know the the charges against her, uh, then you know a fact finder can say that she's in violation of those rules and dismiss her. So uh, that that's what you get with tenure is is due process. Well, this process is going to take some time, so we'll report back on that. But in the meantime, in the corporate setting, there is something else going on about the First Amendment. And I want to talk about that because this one I find particularly fascinating. And it's about Elon Musk and Twitter. He is portraying this as a battle for free speech. Kim, as an advocate of free speech and a member of the media, tell us what this is all about. Yeah, so it was a wacky couple of weeks, a story that developed over um, a couple of weeks where Elon Musk bought uh, a percentage of the shares of Twitter. I believe it was nine and a half percent or something like that, which earned him a spot on the board, which Twitter said, yes, come be a part of our board. You can be active. We want your ideas. Well, suddenly he announced that he did not want to be on the board. Um, And then next thing you know, he is making a hostile takeover bid to try to buy Twitter, uh, something that Twitter does not want. They are taking some steps to, and again, I am not a, um, you know, a shareholder, (laughs) publicly held company expert, but they're trying to take some steps to put some sort of poison pill in that makes the stocks lose their value if he does try to buy that. It's a, it's a big mess. Basically, Elon Musk is trolling Twitter because it doesn't, he doesn't like Twitter. He has said many times before, even during this process, that he believes that Twitter is a dangerous platform because it suppresses free speech again. He seems to not understand how free speech works because Twitter is a private and they can do what they want. But um, that's essentially the basis of this whole controversy. So let's point out that he has 81 million followers on Twitter, and he does use it to troll Twitter. He is a frequent critic 
of Twitter. Yeah. And I just want to comment that in terms of his deciding not to go on the board, part of the reason may be that if he went on the board, he would have to be careful about, A, trolling them on Twitter, and B, <laughs> he would have to take into account shareholder value and the shareholder interests. And so he couldn't keep saying bad things about them. And he also probably couldn't do this hostile takeover as a member of the board. So he may have... And he's gotten in trouble before for saying things. He said things that affected the stock value of his own company, Tesla, in the past. So he already has shown a lack of self-control in that He was area. kicked off his own board for three years because of the SEC finding him in in violation of the rules saying that he had the money to do a certain um, thing that he didn't actually have the money to do. So yeah, it's interesting. But Barb, what are the First Amendment implications of this? And the, the questions raised, are they different for Twitter than for the New York Times? I mean, newspapers and television and radio control what's said on their platforms. So why is it different in social media where the speakers aren't paid reporters, but are us. They're just people commenting. Is this a legal difference uh, in terms of the First Amendment? Yes. So as Kim said, private entities are not subject to the First Amendment. You know, people don't always understand that, but the First Amendment says Congress shall make no law uh, abridging the right of free speech. And that's been extended to other branches of government as well. But private actors can abridge your free speech all they want. Uh, It's private rules. If I don't want you to say certain things in my club, I can kick you out. Uh, If I don't want you to say certain things on Twitter, I can kick you out in the same way they kicked Donald Trump off the platform for promoting uh, false claims of election fraud. You can get thrown out there. So the First Amendment does not apply to private actors. And you ask a good question, Jill, like, well, what's the difference between, say, the New York Times and other things? And that gets into the rules about defamation. And so if the New York Times publishes something that is false and defamatory about someone. If they were to write something that is false and if, you know, depending on the legal standard with with actual malice that they know something is a lie and they print it anyway, then a person has a private cause of action against them, not under the First Amendment, but under the tort of defamation that you have deliberately lied about me. What's different about social media, though, is that there is a federal statute that provides immunity to internet providers. It's called Section 30 of the Communications Act. Sometimes people refer, Communications Decency Act, sometimes people refer to it as the 26 words that invented the internet. I'll read those words. Section 230 says, no provider or user of an interactive computer service shall be treated as the publisher or speaker of any information provided by another information content provider. So unlike the New York Times, which is treated as a publisher and is responsible for what is published there in its paper, uh, the internet service providers are seen as platforms and not publishers. And the reason for that rule was it allowed innovation and the internet to uh, expand the way it did. If if Twitter had to uh, follow every statement on there and verify the accuracy of every statement on the platform with its millions and millions and billions of users, it just couldn't possibly do that. And so for that reason, um, we've seen this, you know, great explosion of content on the internet. But now I think people are beginning to wonder if that was the right decision or if we don't need to scale that back in some way. Because on the one hand, while it has allowed all of this innovation, it has also provided this space for all kinds of false information uh, to appear. 
Yeah, and I think protecting us from false information is quite important. When you talked about the 26 words, I thought the first thing that came to my mind was, I think it's the 10 words that George Carlin couldn't say. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, you can't say on television. And, and I thought yeah. you were going to read those 10 words, but okay. No, this is a family <laughs> podcast, Jill. I can't I'm so glad to hear that. I'll tell you later. Okay. <laughs> Thank you very much. Um, so as interesting as the First Amendment issues are, I think that there are equally interesting corporate governance and takeover issues. And things like, can and should Musk be prevented from taking control? And why? Is it better for him to be on the board or not? Is it better for him to have this 10%, 9.5% that gives him enough control to have an impact or to give him full ownership? What does it mean to you, Kim, as a journalist who's also a lawyer in terms of controlling the delivery of information and facts? Yeah, so I have some thoughts about this. I mean, I look, I, I, I whether it is for, for reasons we've already stated, no, I personally don't think it would be a better um, idea for Elon Musk, of all people, who has not, shall I say, say uh, shown the ability to control his own impulses um, to be a part of uh, trying to figure out this platform, especially when he clearly has a beef with this platform, clearly likes to um, uh, denigrate it uh, based on principles that he does not seem to fully have a grasp on. So no. But from a corporate governance perspective, if you are a uh, someone that's on a board, if you are a stakeholder in the board, that's where the uh, fiduciary duties come into play. You need to do things that are in the best interest of the shareholders in a company, right? And you need to do that. You need to protect the value of it. You need to make sure that you don't open it up to liability. And it does not seem that that is what he is doing here. Again, I am not. I, I did not practice corporate law, so I'm not deeply steeped in that. But I think it, it doesn't take a corporate lawyer to see the problems that are there. From a standpoint as a journalist, who obviously I've worked for a lot of companies. I've worked in public for for public radio. I've worked for privately held newspapers. I have worked for newspapers that were publicly owned, that were uh, traded. Um, and in all of those cases, every single one, what I did, my work, what the decisions that were made about what goes into my stories, what I covered the subject area, never w w have, have never been affected by the business side. There is a clear division there because we should not be thinking as we are writing the stories that we're doing and thinking about our, our coverage and thinking about our content, thinking about, okay, well, what might the people who are making the money want me to do? How might we boost, you know, make this, this advertiser happy or make this shareholder happy or do that? We need to be focused on our work. And to the extent that Twitter wants to call itself something like a public square, which Elon Musk claims that it is, the more hands-off that part of it needs to be, right? I don't think that's what Twitter is. I don't think that Twitter is a public square. First of all, when you look at the general population, only a small population of folks are even on Twitter. It's a very specific thing that's made up of people who sign up for it. Another thing Elon Musk has said that he wants to do is monetize it, is to figure out ways not to rely on advertising, but to make it more of a, you know, make more paid subscriber services and things like that. He wants to make it not the public square, right? So to entrust him to sort of create that, I think, is the wrong way to go. And so for all of those reasons, I'm rambling a little bit, but Twitter is not like a newspaper. 
But as somebody who works for newspapers, news organizations, I see even more so the importance of separating the business side from the content side. And that's certainly not what he seems to want to do. And I don't think you're rambling at all. I think your, your comments about Elon Musk are, are really interesting. I think in this country, we have a fascination with people who are innovators and disruptors, uh, you know, people who do things differently, uh, you know, think different. Uh, people think they're geniuses and they want to follow them. Elon Musk was Time's yeah. person of the year. And I think part of it is because he's disrupted the model and he's done all these interesting and really unusual and, you know, kind of strange things. You know, for example, one of his suggestions about Twitter was to remove the W in its name to sound a little more provocative. Really? I mean, but that was one of his suggestions. I don't know if it was half joking, mm. but just, you know, doing different kinds of things to push the edge. And I think thinking yeah. innovatively is is important and really interesting, but I think he also shows no regard for institutions and rules. Like the, the rules of the SEC are there for important reasons to protect investors from fraud. And so um, I think a little innovation is a good thing, but I think we also need rules to rein in people like Elon Musk. Yes. I mean, his goal really seems to have been to eliminate any what he calls censorship of content on Twitter. And Twitter does very little censorship, but it does prevent false information from being promulgated about election fraud, about COVID. That's an important function for the corporation that runs the, the, the platform to do so that they aren't hurting democracy and hurting the American people by letting it become public. But this is a story in process, whether he will actually go ahead with the uh, hostile takeover or whether he will try to uh, do it in some other fashion and whether there will be a white knight that comes in to save the company or whether they issue the poison pill. Very interesting to see what's happening in this First Amendment arena. Well, the Grand Rapids, Michigan Police Department released videos this week of the tragic shooting of Patrick Leoya, uh, another unarmed black motorist who was shot, this man in the back of the head, by a police officer after a traffic stop. And I, I think the, the first thing we have to acknowledge is the incredible loss of life of this man. He and his family came here from Congo for a better life, to escape violence, only to see, uh, you know, a, a, a horrible death, a violent death by a young man who's 26 and should have his whole life ahead of him. Um, so a tragic loss of life. But just to maybe help us to understand at least what, what's happening and where we are now, Jill, can you just tell us what we know so far about the shooting? Yes. Unfortunately, there's a lot we don't know. So all of our comments today will be in the context of we need to have much more investigation to know if you only focus on the end minutes of Mr. Leoya's life, it's a horrible tragedy and is it's hard to watch. But let's talk about what happened. First of all, this was a traffic stop for a minor infraction. And as I think of all the other deaths that have happened in minor traffic stops, you have to start saying, is there any benefit to these? Do they lead to actual crime reduction? 
And the statistics are they do not. So the first thing we have to look at is whether we stop these. And it does predominantly affect people of color. But what happened in this case is he was stopped. He got out of the car. He seemed confused. He His verbal um, statements were not as clear as, as you would expect. Um, and he refused orders to get back in the car. He refused a request for his license and registration. He fled. At one point, he actually had his hand on the taser, and the taser was um, released twice, both times hitting the ground. And both the police officer, whose name has not been released, which is a big issue, um, and Mr. Leoya had their hands on the taser. And at one point, the officer was on top of him. Mr. Leoya was on his stomach on the ground, and the officer was on top of him. His video cam went off, which could be deliberate or could have been because he was on top of him and it depressed the button that turns off the video. But there is a witness who recorded it, and you can see him shooting after yelling, drop the taser, drop the taser. And apparently Mr. Leoya didn't, and he gets shot in the back of the head. And that's what we know so far. So the thing I come away with is no matter what we find out, we know that these traffic stops have led to tragic loss of life and aren't serving, in my opinion, a valid law enforcement function. So we need to change the rules about that. Yeah, it's such a good point. I think, you know, whether this is or isn't a criminal act, and we need to see the full results of the investigation before we know that despite this really horrible, horrible video and point blank shooting of uh, an unarmed man in the back of the head. It does seem big picture. Why are we putting ourselves in these situations? Aren't there things we can do to avoid it? Kim, let me ask you about that. There's, you know, been an understandable outcry across the country after yet another shooting of a black man killed by a white police officer. We can't keep doing this. And is criminal prosecution the only answer? Yeah, so the answer is is no. I mean, in a perfect world, we would have a reexamination of policy that includes things like Jill talked about, like the the how you approach a situation where there is a violation uh, that, in this case, the license plate on a car does not match the vehicle. There are a lot of other things you could do. There are records that show to whom this plate is supposed to belong to. There is a way to tell what the vehicle is. You can send notices. You can find them. You can revoke licenses. Or th- There are any number of things that you could do systemically to make this not result in a traffic stop. You can also change the way um, that policing, uh, the, the standard of perceived threat, which is what uh, police officers go by, given the uh, abundance of research that shows that people perceive people of color, particularly men of color, to be more threatening than others. As long as you have that standard in place, this is going to continue to happen. But as far as is criminal prosecution the only answer, no. The the family of Mr. Leoya could uh, file a civil suit uh, and seek to uh, 
seek redress based on a constitutional violation, the violation of his constitutional rights. Those are difficult cases to bring. Um, I think in a case like this, given how high profile it is, there could be a civil settlement um, on the part of that police department. So there, there is, there are other ways for accountability. Of course, there can be, and the governor on down in Michigan have called for a complete investigation um, of this, and and the the officer himself can face discipline. But I think what we really need to do is to to back up as a society, because after all of the protests, after as much as we talked about this in the wake of the uh, tragic killing of George Floyd. Policing hasn't changed. I think that's one thing that we are seeing. It hasn't changed, at least at the pace that it needs to. And that needs to be from the ground up. And I think it's, it's also, in this case, it's important to note that, yes, this is a black man and a white officer. The racism in policing is systemic. It's not about the race of the officer, because if the entire system is built on a presumption that black people are more of a threat and they are more dangerous, then it doesn't matter the race of the officer. The officer could be black. The officer could be Martian. It would still perpetuate this a fundamentally race-based presumption that will continue to lead to a disproportionate killing of unarmed Black people. So I, I just want to be careful when we're talking about this. It's not, it's not a presumption that this officer somehow said, I'm going to shoot a Black person. It's The problem is that this officer is a part of a system that perpetuates more violence being done by the hands of police to Black people than to non-Black people. Yeah. Jill, can you tell us, I know there've been some, um, you know, the George Floyd uh, Act and some other efforts uh, for bills that have been kicking around in Congress and elsewhere. Can you tell us about some of the efforts that are underway to try to address some of these problems? There are efforts underway, and that's the problem, is they're still underway. And even in states that have, because it has been at the state level that there's been some action taken, it hasn't resulted in any great reforms, but I think there are things like no-knock warrants are being evaluated and eliminated in some places. Uh, traffic stops are being evaluated in other places so that, for example, this wouldn't have happened because he wouldn't have ever been stopped. And those are important. Training police officers in how to handle situations is another way um, and, and again, I come back to, there's just no excuse for, even with a resisting, uh, arrestee, you're, you're trying to stop someone who's fleeing, who's trying to grab your, your taser, pulling out your weapon and shooting someone for what at most is a, a minimal crime. He didn't have a weapon himself. And the taser was not pointed at the officer at the time of the shooting. I just think that there have to be rules about discharging your weapon that need to be looked at. And that's, you know, recognizing that this is a country where a lot of people assume that anybody they stop may have a gun and may be armed, but they have to see it first. So I, I think the efforts have been, you know, substituting uh, people who are better trained at dealing with uh, domestic violence calls who might, you know, be maybe social workers rather than police officers to bring a different perspective to it and training police officers in how to handle these situations better, as well as 
eliminating the causative things like a traffic stop that don't serve a valid law enforcement function. Yeah, and we've talked about this before. I mean, I talked about the fact that in my the the previous uh, town where I lived, I was stopped multiple times for jaywalking, but I was stopped by a cop with a gun in his holster, and it was it was deeply distressing because I, you know, both times I was walking my dog. He was elderly. I didn't once it was at night. I didn't know what he would think this thing in my hand was. It was a retractable dog leash, Ooh. but it it just it's a situation where there's a better way to handle jaywalking. There were cameras on the intersection. I mean, you know. There, there are so many other ways to try to deal with uh, that. Also, one thing that I found I'd written about a little bit um, are efforts to um, change the the gun discharge rules. So generally speaking, I'm oversimplifying. I'm not a police officer. But when a police officer discharges his or her firearm, they are meant to prepare for that to be a fatal shot. Like it's meant to be a fatal shot. Um and that's how they handle it. In, in uh, LaGrange, Georgia, uh, among other places, the police department uh, is trying to train officers to shoot to incapacitate. So in this case, it would not have been a gunshot fired at a head. It would have been fired at another part of the body. The police chief there, um, Louis Deckmar, um, is has more than 40 years of law enforcement experience and has been inspired to do this in the wake of the, the police violence in the past couple of years to try to make it more likely, at least in the case of um, a police shooting, that the individual lives um, at the end of it, particularly if the um, if whatever pre- precipitated that police interaction was not a violation, if it, you're not going after a murder, you're not going after someone, if it's something like a traffic stop. Um, so I think there are a lot of ways to reimagine and rethink this. But um, as we said, we will have to see how the facts of this case play out. I will say in full disclosure, I have seen some of the body cam footage in this case. Um, I've also read descriptions of what happened, but I have not yet watched the, the the video that shows um, the actual shooting just because until once, if this case goes to trial and we discuss it, I will watch it then so I can talk about the the evidence and, and give a full um, analysis then. But after the past two years, it's just, it's cumulatively emotionally traumatic and exhausting to keep seeing images of this happening over and over again. Yeah. And I, I think we, I agree with you, Kim. It is really awful to watch. And I, I think we can't get numb to it though. So as you said, as the case progresses, it, it's probably important to watch it. I watched all of it. And I think it's important not just to watch the few seconds that are going around Twitter where the fatal shot is fired, which is awful, but the entire um, set of four videos where you see the escalation, the request to get back in the car um, his failure to comply, and then his running, and then the scuffle over the the taser. Um, it's it's as as Jill said, it's important to conduct a fulsome investigation. It's also the case that the law is very favorable for law enforcement officers. The question will be whether a reasonable officer, under the circumstances, felt that his life was in danger or that there was danger of great bodily harm. And if so, then it's not a crime. He has a valid defense here. So the law is really quite favorable that way. It doesn't put yourself in the shoes of the motorist. It puts yourself in the shoes of the police officer. There's also an instruction that says something along the lines of, you have to keep in mind that a police officer's situation is rapidly evolving, tense, and they're sometimes required to make split-second decisions. And so that law makes it quite favorable to the the officer. But I, I think you're both right that rather than looking at, you know, is, are criminal charges here an appropriate 
a, a question appropriate response or not, I think that the better thing to do is let's look back and figure out how do we stop these situations from occurring in the first place? And I know sometimes asked the que- this question, well, um, is it the case that there are more black people being killed by police officers than white people, or do we only hear about the cases with black people? And one answer is we don't know because law enforcement doesn't collect this data. That is one of the recommend- recommendations from President Obama's task force on 21st century policing is that we collect this data. But the Washington Post has done its own little project to try to collect data since 2015. And they collect data that says police shoot and kill about a thousand people a year. And it's, it's um, eerily consistent that it's about a thousand people. And although black people make up 13% of the population, uh, twice as many black people are killed as white people by, by police officers. So it, it absolutely is the case that we see far more the use of guns against black uh, citizens than against whites. And I think there are a number of things in this case alone that can be a case study for things that could have reduced the likelihood of a fatality here. One, as Jill says, is let's stop using police stops for really minor traffic violations. The one here was that the license plate didn't match the registration for the vehicle. Can't that be done through uh, mail, through the Department of Motor Vehicles or some other thing? The officer was alone. You know, when you're initiating a stop, the instant that man got out of the car and started walking toward him, he had a problem because he was all alone and he was facing this person who in our country where there is an abundance of guns, anybody could have a gun. You have to worry about whether this person may have a gun. So having this officer in this situation alone is already creating this problem. The officer doesn't really try to engage in any de-escalation. He just keeps repeating, stop, 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 stop running. He calls for backup, but he never tries to de-escalate the situation. He engages in a foot chase. The guy is running away from his own car and his friend is in the car. You know, we're going to figure out who he is. You can catch him later. (laughs) Wait for the backup, which arrives in about three minutes. Maybe wait the three minutes instead of engaging in a foot chase. Um, And so all of these things, I think, were inflection points where this tragedy could have been avoided. And so maybe police departments may need to look at some of their policies to avoid putting their officers in these situations where these kinds of fatalities are likely to occur. So it continues to be a problem, and we need to continue to persist in finding solutions. Well, now we come to the favorite part of our show where we answer our listener questions. If you have a question for us, please email us at sistersinlaw at politicon.com or tweet using hashtag sistersinlaw. If we don't get to your question during the show, please keep an eye on our Twitter feeds throughout the week where we'll answer as many of your questions as we can. Our first question comes from Lydia, who asks, How does Judge Jackson prepare for her upcoming tenure on the U.S. Supreme Court? Past justices? What do you guys think? Kim, if you were uh, soon-to-be Justice Katanji Brown-Jackson, what would you do to prepare for your upcoming tenure on the Supreme Court? Well, one thing Judge Jackson has that no other confirmed uh, nominee has ever had is this amount of time between her confirmation and when she actually takes to the bench. Her confirmation, her uh, appointment will become effective upon the retirement of Justice Stephen Breyer, who was serving through the end of the term. And the term's not going to end until the end of June or the beginning of July. So that's several months. Usually it's a matter 
matter of several weeks or maybe um, a month top tops when a justice uh, is confirmed before uh, he or she takes the bench. In the case of Amy Coney Barrett, remember, it was a couple of weeks from when she was nominated mm-hmm. to when she was on the bench. It happened really, really fast. It was about a month total. Um, and so in this case, not only does uh, Judge Jackson have until the end of the term when she is actually appointed to the bench, they don't. the next full term doesn't start until the following October. So she has a lot of time, not only just to wind down her business on the D.C. circuit where she's currently uh, a judge, Uh, but also to mentally prepare for this monumental task ahead to get to know the other justices. I'm assuming that they are having her over for dinner or, or, you know, socially distanced lunch, whatever they're doing. There's a bit of a BA2 surge here in D.C. Um, Preparing for that, thinking about the way she might approach dissents, thinking about the way she writes and knowing that she'll be in dissent a lot and preparing herself and her family for what it will mean for this role. So she has a lot of time which is the cool part of this. Most justices usually don't. What do you guys think? Jill, what's one thing you would do if you were getting ready to join the Supreme Court? Well, I agree with Kim. I would certainly spend time getting to know the other justices during this period. She has the advantage also of having clerked for the justice that she will be replacing and could spend time with him particularly saying, you know, what's on the agenda coming up? How did you get yourself integrated into the court? Because, you know, just think of yourself when you've started any new job and you're going to show up for the first day. And I remember when I was taking over at um, the Chicago Public Schools in the Career and Technical Education Department, as I was like driving to work, I suddenly thought, I'm meeting, you know, hundreds of people who are working for me. I'm going to walk in. I don't even know where my office is this is really awkward. And I called one of my best friends and said, what do I do? And she said, stop and buy a bunch of donuts, feed them and, you know, get them all in one room. So, which I thought was a great idea. And so I, it is just a question of how do you get to know the people? Obviously she's going to spend time reading a lot of briefs of what's coming up in the next term so that she's caught up and prepared to handle the substantive part. But it's also her role you know, she's been kind of known as has Justice Breyer to be someone who can maybe build consensus. And so she's going to want to know them so she can help to fulfill that role. In her first year, she probably will be mostly quiet and won't be too active because I think that's what's been traditional. But yeah, I think it's just getting to know the issues that she's going to be facing and the people she's going to be working with. Yeah, I guess I would add, if I were in her shoes now, as a D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals judge, and before that, a district court judge, she's pretty up on the law. So I think she's probably read most Mm -hmm. of the big cases that are coming down. So I don't know that she has to study up a whole lot in that arena, though to the extent she hasn't, there is time to read any of the work of the justices that she's going to be joining to just try to, you know, scout out the, the, the team and the opposition. There may be some value in that. I totally agree with you about spending some time with each of the justices to try to build a rapport with them because she is going to have to try to navigate and build alliances. But I also think there's, you know, the creature comfort things like, where do I park my car? Where's the ladies room? Do we have casual Fridays? Like, what do I get to wear on a Friday? All that stuff I think is important. And then I also agree that 
building relationships, not just with the justices, but everyone who works in that building is so important. Uh, and I think sometimes mm-hmm. people overlook everybody. I want to, you know, I want to know the janitors. I want to know the people who work in the cafeteria. I want to know the support staff. I want to know the law clerks. I think it's really important to, to meet all the people there. I know during COVID that can be a challenge, but I think it's really important to, to know your colleagues and, and um, res- show that you respect all of them. All right, our next question comes from retired district judge Susan. I think I know which retired district judge Susan this is. Um, She says, I'm presiding over a mock trial where a jury will decide whether Gerald Ford was right to pardon Richard Nixon. Lawyers and others will act the parts of those involved. I was interested in knowing Jill's opinion on the topic. Oh, that's great. So thank you for a really good question, retired district judge Susan. And thank you for being willing to participate in mock trials. Um, My goddaughter's daughter has been very active in mock trials, and I've coached their team, and it's such a great experience for them. And it was a great experience for me when I was in law school. Uh, I didn't have that opportunity in high school or college, but in law school I did. So thank you for doing that. In terms of the, the pardon, It's a really tricky question, and so I'm going to answer it in two ways. One is how I felt at the time, and I am one of those people who believed that Richard Nixon, the evidence was overwhelming, proof beyond a reasonable doubt to convict and sustain a conviction, and that he should be indicted, I thought, both while he was sitting president and, again, the minute he resigned and was a private citizen. And I thought it was very important that he be held accountable and that it it was essential to justice to do that. To his co-defendants who were going to, you know, stand trial, why shouldn't the leader of the group be tried along with them? And so when the the pardon came, we researched and found that there is no way around a pardon. Once he was pardoned, we could not consider indicting him. And there was a brief moment in between his resignation in August and his pardon that we could have. And we were debating that with our leader at the time, um, Leon Jaworski, and he was, no, we really shouldn't. I was irate. I thought it was really the wrong thing. I think it has consequences today that if Donald Trump had been aware of the potential for indictment, maybe it would have changed his behavior, although in the case of Donald Trump, maybe it wouldn't have. But I also was in a panel with at the Ford Library in Grand Rapids, which we've already talked about today in this, um, this podcast. And um, President Ford's son was there, and the person who delivered the offer of the pardon to Richard Nixon was there. And he made a really good case. He said the President Ford really meant to end the nightmare, to put it behind us, to let us move on, that he also wanted to be fair to Nixon. And he sent this man, who was a young lawyer, to San Clemente with the offer and a copy of the decision that says, if you accept a pardon, you are admitting your guilt. He wanted Richard Nixon to know that that was admitting guilt by accepting the pardon. And that made me feel a little differently about it, is, okay, so he admitted his guilt, 
I still feel that indictment and trial would have been a better outcome, but I no longer am angry at President Ford for having done it. I think that he acted from his own sense of ethics and conscience, and maybe it was the right thing to put an end to it. I don't feel the same way about the current situation, however. Well, thanks, Jill. Um, Our last question comes from Bob, who asks, how can states outlaw and make it criminal to have an abortion when, as of now, it's still legal in the United States? We're seeing all kinds of states enacting all kinds of laws outlawing abortion across the country. Kim, you want to take a stab at that one? Yeah, they're, they're outlawing the abortion in these states because they want to change the fact that it is still legal in the United States. That's exactly the game. The, the way to get a challenge to Roe versus Wade, uh, the Supreme Court can't on its own accord decide, hey, we, we think that this case is wrong. They have to take up a challenge, which gives them the opportunity to revisit it. And these laws are being passed for the express purpose of challenging Roe versus Wade so that Uh, It is no longer the law of the land that preserves that constitutional right as it currently stands to abortion access. I mean, that's the whole game in itself. Yeah. And, you know, while states are passing these laws to challenge Roe versus Wade, then we've got the situation in Texas. And I think maybe Idaho has played copycat there where they created a law that deliberately avoids judicial review. They are circumventing the whole process. That's the one that I find that's so sinisterly evil. And so um, we've seen the Supreme Court already resist a few opportunities to strike that down, but there still is a challenge from the Department of Justice to that law. And I remain hopeful that that one will be invalidated because regardless of your view on abortion, that one just violates the rule of law by making it uh, unavailable for judicial review. And that, that just can't be. So I'm hopeful that we'll see, at least as a matter of process, that one getting struck down. Thanks for listening to Hashtag Sisters in Law with Kimberly Atkins Store, Jill Weinbanks, and me, Barb McQuaid. Joyce will be back next week. You can send in your questions by email to sistersinlaw at politicon.com or tweet them for next week's show using hashtag Sisters in Law. Go to politicon.com slash merch to buy our new women's t-shirt and please support this week's sponsors, Noom, Athena Club, Thrive Cosmetics, AARP Services, and HelloFresh. You can find their links in the show notes. Please support them as they really help make this show happen. To keep up with us every week, follow hashtag SistersInLaw on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And please give us a five-star review. It really helps others to find the show. See you next week with another episode, hashtag SistersInLaw. So Jill, what are George Carlin's seven words you can't say on TV anyway. Ooh, Barb, I don't know if I can say those well, on no, a broadcast. Well, no, but you can tell me. But you mm, know them? Okay, I'll tell you. I'll t- I, well, just well, tell us. Yeah, I, I, I do. I remember George Carlin. Okay, so the seven words you can never say on television without getting beeped are and 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 oh, oh my god! Oh my god! And 
The sixth word is. <laughs> and. Wow, I'm glad. I'm glad we aren't saying those on the podcast because that would earn us an explicit rating. So thank you. Oh my gosh. It would certainly hurt our credibility. That's the most impressive thing I've seen all week. Thank you, Joe Winebanks. Ha, 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 ha.